Hi, my name is Aisha Zengin. And I'm Alex Rodriguez, and welcome back to another episode of Bone Group Banter. As always, we're here to discuss, debate, and share all things musculoskeletal. But first, the news. What's making research news this week, Aisha? So our first headline is from Science Mag. Smile, your dog's brain will light up in response. As every dog lover and scientist knows, man's best friend is good at reading faces. Dogs can tell the difference between happy and not so happy expressions, such as anger and sadness. Like us, they watch the left sides of people's faces where emotional cues first appear. And they even seem to be able to interpret our emotions and modulate their behaviour accordingly. But what are the neural mechanisms or what happens in the brain that controls how dogs process human faces? To find out, scientists trained eight dogs, mostly border collies, they're very cute, to lie still in a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner, basically an MRI, while viewing photos of strangers with either happy or neutral expressions. The faces match the gender of the dog's chief caretakers because dogs have been shown to score lower on tasks involving faces of the opposite sex. The results. A happy human face produces a distinctive signature in a dog's temporal lobe, so a part in the brain, and other neural regions, the scientists report online this week on the preprint server by Arvix. So that was interesting. Um, our next headline is how the ghost knife fish became the fastest electrical discharger in the animal kingdom. <laughs> the South American ghost knife fish may not be the brightest spark in the animal kingdom, but it certainly is the most persistent. It has a specialized organ in its tail containing a small group of cells that can discharge electricity at frequencies approaching 2000 times per second, the fastest in the animal kingdom. To find out how the ghost knife fish does this, researchers compared the gene encoding the voltage-gated sodium channel, which is a protein essential for generating electrical signals, in the ghost knife fish with those of the glass knife fish, an, electrical, an electric relative, and the channel catfish, a non-electric species. They found that the gene was duplicated in ghost knife fish approximately 14.5 million years ago, then acquired several mutations over the subsequent 2 million years, which made the channel fire more frequently and led to it being synthesized by nerve cells in the spinal cord as well as in muscle cells. The fish uses these electrical sparks to navigate, detect objects and communicate. The scientists say the findings could provide new clues about the genetic basis of epilepsy and certain inherited muscle diseases which are associated with mutations in the sodium channel genes. Two very interesting uh, stories to come out of this week, and I suppose that theme of um, uh, neural transmission is relevant to today's topic, as we'll be talking about uh, bone health or the skeletal health um, in cerebral palsy. And to help us navigate uh, this field, we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Anne Trin, an endocrinologist from Monash Health. So um, thanks, Anne, for being here. Why don't you start off with telling us um, a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, so I'm an endocrinologist based here at Monash Health, and I'm currently doing a PhD in the area of chronic neurological disease and bone. And one of the diseases that I've been looking at is cerebral palsy. Yes. 
So just on that, could you tell us what what is cerebral palsy? So cerebral palsy is basically when people have problems with movement and that's due to an um, insult they had to their brain when they were much younger, so usually around the time of birth, whether that was in their mother's tummy or shortly after birth. Mm. So basically these people are born with this? Yes, that's right, or, or within basically a year or so have some sort of injury to the brain and that initial injury causes them problems with their movement that continues on through their life. So it's not an ongoing disease process as such, so it's really from one insult to the brain, but the consequences of it, unfortunately, live with them lifelong. Mm. And of course, um, you know, if you've seen uh, any live birth of a, of a human or, or, or even animals, um, you know, the creature that comes out, uh, you know, isn't the most uh, uh, attractive. How do you, how can you, how can you tell, how can you tell that somebody's had this insult? What signs do you look for to determine whether a newborn um, potentially could have cerebral palsy? Well, very early on it is tricky. So often we're just looking, doctors are just looking at how the babies are breathing, what colour they are, their oxygen levels, things like that. But it's really till they're much older that you can see some maybe early signs like for example how early we're talking as well sometimes things can be picked up even at a year's age or earlier depending on how severe um, the original injury was but say babies aren't crawling like they should or sitting up or standing Um, babies usually shouldn't be preferring one side of their one hand to another by at least, you know, um, much later. So by one and a half, two years, they might develop that. But if they're developing it earlier, then you suspect maybe one side of their body is weaker and that's why they're preferring the other side. Okay. So they're subtle usually at the start, um, the signs. Um, and the diagnosis often doesn't come to a few years later after birth. Mm. Okay. Um, everything that you've described so far would indicate that there would be some... Um, development issues with respect to their bones. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'll just start off by saying, so it's not only movement problems that they have, but often um, it encompasses other problems as well. So, for example, they might have hearing difficulties, vision difficulties, um, language difficulties, um, and also they may have um, uh, what we call cognitive or intellectual disabilities as well. So um, often it's just not an insult to the brain specifically for their movement, but usually it involves other areas as well. Okay. Mm. So going back to the bone health question, um, you obviously both know and you've talked about in previous episodes how important it is for uh, muscle is to bone and movement is to bone. And so we assume that in this disease, because they are moving less than their bone development um, will be affected. So they're not getting, in very early stages, they're not getting enough uh, movement because of this underlying neurological um, uh, uh, problem. They're not getting enough movement to stimulate bone growth That's in right. that important development phase. Yes. Mm. So it's really um, affects them, affects their bones from the start. So their bone growth... Um, so they're never given a chance in the first right. place. That's right. It's compromised and 
many of these um, individuals, they usually are very short as a result because they don't have that stimulus for their bones to grow and their bones are usually very small compared to, say, other children or adults of their age. Okay. So because they can't attain peak bone mass, yes. um, what happens to them? Like, do they live to till they're adults or teenagers? So we do know that the life expectancy, so how long um, these individuals live, is quite varied depending on how severe their disease is to begin with. Um, but there is, they are a lot more likely to die at a younger age. So we're saying here the data is not that great, but um, often in, they really struggle by the time they reach middle age. Mm. And can, as you said, this is a, a, an ongoing uh, problem for, for their entire lives. So can you tell us a little bit about the treatments um, uh, that we give to these individuals and what are potential effects or benefits they might have on the skeleton or otherwise, and musculoskeletal health in general? So unfortunately there's no specific treatment for cerebral palsy because the injuries happened Mm -hmm. at a young age. So really what treatment is focused on is the problems that arise from that injury. So say they can't move very well and they develop um, stiffening of their joints and so people focus on, for example... Um, treatments such as Botox or um, putting their um, joints in plaster casts to try and so stretch So we're talking about the out. Botox we use on our faces That's as well. right. Or cosmetic <laughs> surgery. Yes. They, in this case, use it on their muscles to try and relax them to prevent the joints from oh. stiffening up. Yeah. Um, Is that botulin? Mm-hmm. Botulinium yeah. toxin, yeah. yeah. So... For example, that's one of the treatments. Now, a lot of these individuals also have epilepsy um, or seizures, um, as we know, so they will require medications for that. So it's really, or some have problems with feeding and they might need feeding through a tube. So these are the kind of treatments. It's really not treatments or curing them, it's really supporting them. Um, And you can already see that these can affect the bones as well, so... Um, medications used to treat seizures we do know can affect bone health and reduce um, mineral being deposited in the bone. Um, We also know that if you don't have adequate nutrition you Mm. also have problems with bone development and obviously um, remodelling of the bone. Mm. And what about, because we know, yeah, we're talking about muscle, you said a little bit about uh, movement there. Yes. what do we know about encouraging more movement and actual, you know, uh, uh, sort of ac- physical activity therapies in, in these individuals? Is that routinely done? Is it encouraged? And is it in the management program? For these yes. individuals? Yes, to a certain degree. So, um, But there's no specific is, sort of recommendation. That's right. So it is very much encouraged, but despite that, what we do find, and there's been recent studies that have published this, that um, 80% of children who used to be able to walk, by the time they reach adulthood, they can no longer walk. And that often is because it is terrible. It is because their muscles have weakened over time um, because they do develop these stiffenings of the joints. Um, And that's even with, you know, physiotherapy, etc. So I think it is tricky. It will be... Um, an area of interest but also challenging to try and maintain 
their movement because that will obviously have a big impact on their quality of life as well as their bone health. Mm. You mentioned um, that they would need um, some kind of special feeding. So how does... You briefly touched on the nutrition aspect of it. So how would that affect their bones? Yes. So um, first of all... um, basic minerals so calcium obviously within their diet um, needs to be monitored if they're on tube feeding usually it is um, looked at and obviously optimized Um, but if they're not tube fed which a lot of them aren't then you do um, there is a potential for there to be inadequate calcium intake similarly vitamin d Mm -hmm. Um, but there is an increased recognition in um those with disability that they may not receive enough sunlight and there often is an attempt to give adequate vitamin D. But also just basically protein malnutrition can lead to um, uh, um, problems with bone growth. So Mm. it's not just the minerals and the vitamins we know, but it's also the fact that they're overall malnourished. Mm. And we really want to tap into your clinical experience here and... Obviously, um, you know, with better treatments and the better management of these uh, these individuals, they're living longer and longer. So how does uh, our management or care differ as, as we've gone from, you know, young child to adolescence in, into adult? Because you said that the muscles tend to stiffen mm. over time. Is that because physiotherapy is less important? There's less access to that sort of treatment? I think there is definitely an element of that. So I think... Um, there is more funding for children um, in terms of programs. Don't tell me this is an all-the-money issue again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think once they do become adolescents and adults, there are attempts to try and link them in to adult services and say, Monash, we're lucky that we have a children's hospital in the same site as an adult hospital. So you hope that the link is sufficient. Um but still, and is, it, is it sufficient? Well, there are services, but still, some people seem to somehow get lost in the system from yeah. moving to the children to the adults' hospital. And not all hospitals have that, and so um, it is even harder for children from other hospitals, which don't then have adult hospitals attached, to try and receive the same number of services that they did when they were children. Mm. Mm. And just in your experience and your expertise in this field, do you think going back, just say, 25 years, has there been improvements for these patients? Um, Yes, there have been improvements. I think, unfortunately, there's been no major breakthrough in terms of reducing the number of cases Mm. of cerebral palsy, which, again, is disappointing. Um, In terms of the treatments... Um, to help with their um, disabilities. I think, you know, there has been more interest in disability research as well as, you know, the NDIS coming out, for example, in Australia. Yes, insurance insurance scheme, scheme, yes. Um, And so hopefully that's addressed some of the gaps um, in their care. Um, and there's been a network um, through Australia, um, the Cerebral Palsy um, Alliance, which funds research as well you into this area. might put that link in the... Um, in the, the description, yeah. The, yes. The and so um, 
there's such a broad field of research in cerebral palsy I'm just focusing on a little bit but there have been gradual changes in the whole field um, and um, specifically in bone health there's been more interest and publications recently right. as well mm. and so if you were health minister with the stroke of a pen you, know, <laughs> you could change anything you wanted um, in, in this little area what would it be <laughs> um, thank god I'm not a health minister <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, we have a limited budget in healthcare, and I think, um, I think maintaining their mobility is probably very important for their quality of life and um, for their carers as well. And so that has ongoing effects to their other areas. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anne. It's been great talking to you. Um, nice to end on a positive note as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in summary, we've spoken about what cerebral palsy actually is, um, the treatments that are available. Um, Effects on the musculoskeletal system and the role of nutrition and, and physiotherapy as well in their management. Yeah. So thanks again. Thank um, you for inviting me. That's, um, all right. that's all we have time for today. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and get in touch via Twitter or email if you have any questions. Thanks for your time and see you next week. Bye.